Last time, we spoke about the offensive against the Gifu. The estimation of the Gifu defenses proved to be greatly underestimated, and it was only after the seahorse was taken that the Gifu was severely isolated enough that its defenders began to crumble. At the last minute, 100 Japanese came out screaming, tossing grenades and bullets. But ultimately, the Gifu was taken, and now the American forces on Guadalcanal could focus on pursuing the Japanese fleeing west. We also finished up the Bunagona campaign with the fall of Sanananda. The Japanese fought bitterly, tooth and nail, to retain their last toehold from their failed Port Moresby campaign. The evacuation was a disaster, leading to countless wounded and ill Japanese committing suicide, while their comrades fled for their lives trying to break through the Allied lines. Those lucky enough to get past the gauntlet of fire went to Salamala and Lei where they would have to continue the fight over New Guinea. This episode is the Battle of Rennell Island. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Where I'm just now finishing up a multi-part series on aspects of the attack on Pearl Harbor you might not know. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself have my own Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel where fans who want to hear a bit more about subjects I can't cover here on other various projects, well, I'll make exclusive content dedicated to just that. So if that's of interest to you, check out the Patreon, or you can catch me at the Pacific War Channel Discord, the Kings and Generals Discord server, or you can just leave a comment on any of my YouTube videos. I always check them out. Last time we saw the conclusion to one of the bloodiest battles fought in New Guinea, let alone the Pacific War, the Battle of Bunagona took the lives of countless Americans, Australians, Japanese, and native Papuans, whose misery almost never gets spoken about. We also saw a ton of action over on Starvation Island. The seahorse was captured, thus greatly isolating the fortified Gifu. When the Gifu's defenders realized they were cut off from the rest of the army, they made one last hurrah into oblivion. 100 or so screaming Japanese stormed out of the Gifu with rifles, pistols, swords, and grenades in hand to hurt the Americans as much as they could. After their suicidal charge, the Gifu had finally fallen, and now the Americans could focus their attention west. But January the 17th, the first phase of the 14th Corps Western Offensive had ended. The 25th Division reduced three pockets of Japanese that had emerged two days prior and the 2nd Marine Division had smashed the Japanese around hills 83 and 84. On the 12th, the 27th Infantry had captured the horse's head, cutting off Major Nishiyama's units, then numbering 200 survivors out of an original 600. He was forced to make a last stand. He smoked his last cigarette, 
with tears in his eyes, as he looked to his men in the eyes, and he told them all to prepare themselves to die. He wrote in his diary that their calm acceptance, this moved him greatly. For the next two days, he and the men looked for an area that could best serve to give up their lives, to make it meaningful. While Nishiyama kept a strong face for the men, following the orders to make a final stand, privately in his diary, he debated with himself if he should rather try to withdraw, taking the men on his own authority, as he wrote, to do so even at the expense of my honor. He knew very well he could make a cover story to save face, some sort of false pretext to save the men from annihilation. But to do so did not only mean dishonoring himself, it meant to dishonor the entire unit. So over the course of those two days, he sent a runner to the divisional HQ, and General Ito sanctioned a withdrawal, and thus Nishiyama and his 200 men escaped annihilation with their honor intact. It was very fortunate for them, as General Patch's next phase of the offensive was set to begin on January the 16th. The 14th Corps' next objective was a line from Hills 87 going northeast to the beach. This would contain Hills 87, 88, and 89. The 6th Marines of the 2nd Marine Division and the 182nd Infantry would secure the right side, and the 25th Division would advance in the southern portion seizing Hills 87, 88, and 89. Four infantry regiments of the 147th Infantry would be held back to guard the airfields. The 27th Infantry of the 25th Division would advance astride a narrow ridge called the Snake to assault Hill 87 from the east, which the Americans assumed would be heavily fortified. The 161st Infantry would perform a deep envelopment from the Galloping Horse to the southwest capturing hills X, Y, and Z, then performing a flanking maneuver to seize hills 88 and 89. The 25th Infantry would protect the southern flank of the 161st, and they would continue to exterminate pockets of Japanese in the area. Exterminate, by the way, is a very cruel and fitting term for the way that they were going about the business. For many of these so-called pockets were nothing more than abandoned, starving Japanese. By the 21st, hills X and Y were taken by the 161st, with relatively minor resistance. Then the 161st planned to deploy the 1st Battalion to guard the southern flank while the 2nd and 3rd Battalions got off Hill 7 to march towards Hill 87 when circumstances suddenly changed. On January the 21st, the 27th Infantry was advancing on the narrow front with the 1st Battalion as their spearhead and behind them were the 3rd and 2nd Battalions. The next morning, at 6.30 a.m., the 25th Divisional Artillery began tossing over 3,654 shells upon hills 87, 88, and 89. At that point, the 1st Battalion advanced down the Snake's Back, where they took out three Japanese machine gun nests trying to block their advance to the Snake's Tail. By 9.10 a.m., the 1st Battalion was on its way to assault Hill 87. It looked from afar that Hill 87 held light opposition, and after the 1st Battalion seized the hill at 9.40, the 161st Infantry was ordered to cross Hill Y to Z, while the rest of the regiment turned north to follow along the snake behind the 27th Infantry. Now, while all of this was occurring, Brigadier General Robert Spragans was sent by General Patch to give General Collins, leading the 25th, authority to have them advance upon Kokumbona 
as rapidly as possible. The 25th's boundaries were thus extended to hills 91, 98, and 99, which were like stepping stones towards Kokumbona. Without pause, the 1st Battalion took Hill 88 and 89 by 11 a.m. Then at 2 p.m. it received the orders to seize Hill 90. By that time, night was coming on, and Hills 90 and 91 would be seized, and this all tossed the Japanese defensive plans into pure chaos. During the night of January the 22nd, the 17th Army HQ marched to Cape Esperance, and the 38th Division began to extract all the units it still was in contact with. But the huge thrusts made by the 27th Infantry were pinching off the 2nd Division's flank and the Yano Battalion. The 2nd Division had orders to hold its positions until sundown on January the 23rd, but with the enemy advancing so much, Murayama had ordered his men to pull back at 5 a.m. Most of the 2nd Division succeeded to pull back, but the Nido Battalion of about 50 men all died holding their position. When the 17th Army found out, they were angered by Murayama. However, unbeknownst to them, Murayama pretty much saved countless Japanese lives on January the 23rd. That was because the Americans had performed a two-pronged assault. The 3rd Battalion hit hills 98 and 99, while the 1st Battalion had marched for Kokombona directly. By 3.30, Kokombona was captured. This was done in astonishingly quick time. They could have overrun and annihilated Murayama's men, had he not pulled out in time. Overall, between January the 10th to the 27th, the 27th Infantry had suffered 66 deaths, including 7 officers. Now, taking Kokumbona caused major changes for both the Americans and the Japanese. For the Japanese, the obvious change was that many units were withdrawing, while others who did not receive the orders in time to pull out would be smashed by the Americans now that they were thrusting along the coast. The 6 Marines were assaulting Japanese forces who had failed to withdraw, and by January the 24th, the remnants of the 27th Regiment were annihilated, just a bit due east of Kokumbona. Now the 25th had made it to the area, joining CAM divisions, consisting of the 147th, the 182nd, and the 6 Marines to advance further west. From the American perspective, it looked like the Japanese might be aiming to perform a major counteroffensive. So, General Patch retained at least one division at the Lunga airfield, just in case. This, of course, was not the case, as the 17th Army was now hyper-mobilizing its withdrawal. And to do so, it organized new coastal defensive units, made up of the ill and wounded. Men of the 38th and the 2nd Divisions were sent to Cape Esperance and Kabimbo, while the Yano Battalion was deployed along the Maramura River by the 25th. Colonel Konuma, in charge of the rearguard duty, took his men to the Bonegi River, where he hoped to make a stand on its eastern bank to regain time lost because of the 27th's incredible advances. On January the 24th and the 25th, his men scattered into independent groups, hindering the enemy's advance short of the Poha River. The Cam Division ran into the Yano Battalion at around 1 p.m. on January the 26th, which, the Marines said, gave them the heaviest resistance they had seen in quite a while. Major Yano's forces were gradually pushed back half a mile west of the Maruma by the 28th, and the next day they had to withdraw across the Bonegi River, leaving the battered 2nd Infantry Group to face the American advance. On the 30th, the 147th Infantry got hit by the American vanguard. 
1,000 men crossed the Bonegi River but were quickly chased back to the eastern bank. The next day, the 147th performed an envelopment maneuver using two companies which crossed the Bonegi River. This resulted in what the Japanese called considerable losses, leading them to extract their forces away from the Bonegi River. And what the Japanese consider considerable losses must be a lot. By February the 1st, the 147th fled for their lives as the destroyer Wilson began bombarding the Bonegi River area. Now we have to take a pause about the ground offensive going on to talk a bit more about the air and sea battles. American intelligence found the Villa Stanmore area on the Columbangera to be associated with radio traffic directing aviation units on Balali. They sent reconnaissance to go look and found a Nassian air base and began to suspect it was a staging area for barges and other small vessels trying to smuggle supplies to Munda. This prompted Admiral Halsey to plan an attack upon Villa Stanmore to destroy the Munda air strength. Halsey gave Admiral Ainsworth the assignment of bombarding. He would continue from the Kula Gulf while Munda would be hit by aerial bombardment. Ainsworth would have Task Force 67, consisting of four light cruisers and seven destroyers. Japanese search planes located Ainsworth on the afternoon of January the 23rd, prompting them to launch Bettys from the 701st and 705th Air Groups. Ainsworth managed to slip by them during the night, and at 2 a.m. his cruisers and destroyers fired over 2,006-inch shells and 1,504-inch shells in 30 minutes. According to the Japanese over in Columbangera, they sustained heavy material damage that delayed construction efforts, killed five men, and wounded 20. Meanwhile, 30 Bettys hunted down Ainsworth, finally catching a glimpse of his force because of the muzzle flashes. But before the Bettys could toss torpedoes at them, Ainsworth pulled the ships into rain squalls and used radar-directed 5-inch anti-aircraft fire to hit back at the enemy. Around 8 a.m., 24 Dauntless, 17 Avengers, and 18 Wildcats from Saratoga delivered 23 tons of bombs upon Munda. Neither Munda nor Villa Stanmore played a crucial role in Operation KE, fortunately for the Japanese. On January the 25th, 54 Zeros and 18 Bettys left Rabal to perform a live bait role. Another 24 Zeros left Boon to join this, but weather prevented 18 of them from continuing. The Air Force reached Guadalcanal at 1.40pm as the Cactus Air Force tossed 18 Wildcats and 6 P-38s to meet them. Four Zeros were shot down with another six heavily damaged. A second raid was made by the IGA's 6th Air Division. Nine Kawasaki Ki-48 Lily Bombers, 74 Nakajima Ki-43 Oscar Fighters, and two Mitsubishi Ki-46 Denais departed Buka and Shortland, and at around 9 a.m. on January the 27th. The Cactus Air Force this time tossed up a dozen Wildcats, six P-38s, and ten P-40s over Lunga to battle them all the way towards the Russells. Six Oscars were downed as the Lilies bombed the Matanikau for little effect. A third raid was set up for January the 29th, but it had to be postponed because something big was cooking up around Rennell Island. The campaign to claim air superiority had fallen short of its goals, prompting the Southeast Area Fleet to request Operation KE be postponed. But the 8th Area Army adamantly insisted the evacuation must proceed as fast as possible. 
Now, the IGN had sent some submarine supply missions to the 17th Army in late December and on January the 8th. American intelligence began to look closely at the radio traffic because of this. They managed to decipher some signals predicting submarine transport runs set for January the 26th, 27th, and 29th. On the 29th, the Kiwi and MOA, two out of four New Zealand corvettes, were operating from Tulagi, and they were hunting off the coast of Kamimbo when Lieutenant Commander Bridson of the Kiwi sighted the I-1 at 9.05. Seeing the submarine menace, he dropped two death charges right away, forcing the submarine to surface, and an eruption of four-inch gunfire began. The skipper of the Kiwi ordered a full-speed run to ram the submarine, drawing protest from Kiwi's chief engineer. But Lieutenant Bridson had this to scream. Shut up! There's a weekend's leave in Auckland, dead ahead of us! Thus, the Kiwi proceeded to smash into the submarine's port side, causing a breach in her and sending troops aboard her to start jumping overboard. As the Kiwi backed away, she began firing upon the landing barges strapped to the submarine. Then Commander Bridson yelled out, Hit her again! It'll be a week's leave! Once more for the fortnight! The Kiwi smashed into her again, causing diesel oil to spout out everywhere. After this rather hilarious battle that went on for 90 minutes, Bridson withdrew, allowing the MOA to hold the fight. I just gotta say, that is the most Kiwi-ass thing I've ever heard. This guy just screaming at his men how they're gonna get time off from work if they do this by injuring their own boat. That's awesome. Now, aboard the I-1, Captain Lieutenant Commander Aichi Sakamoto had begun operating the periscope when the depth charges had hit a submarine. He scrambled over to her surface, and her gun crew managed to fire two salvos at the Kiwi before the fusillade fire from the Kiwi cut the gunners and Sakamoto down. Upon seeing this, well, this seems to have prompted the submarine's navigator to rush down the ladder screaming, Swords! Swords! Apparently, the navigator was a very famous swordsman, and he quickly re-emerged topside with sword in hand, and he tried to jump aboard the Kiwi during the ramming venture. While he jumped, he managed to grab onto one of her rails as a rifleman on top of the I-1 tried firing at her. After being rammed for a third time, 47 soldiers jumped overboard swimming to shore as the MOA captured the navigator, which would have looked like something, I guess, out of Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, this guy just jumps over on this other ship, holding onto the railing with his, like, katana in hand. This must have been so funny to see. And the I-1 lay twisted in the water as the Japanese desperately tried to scuttle her. Later on in February, Australian divers would actually manage to loot the uh, sunken submarine, and they found 200,000 pages of secret documents providing cryptographic materials and valuable JN-25 code information. In mid to late January, Admiral Nimitz and Halsey both regarded the dramatic accumulation of IGN shipping, vigorous air activity, and all the increased radio chatter to be pointing towards some sort of new offensive in the Southern Solomons. They were looking at this anxiously because the projected withdrawal of a 2nd Marine Division was coming up. They had procrastinated the last removal of the Marines for quite some time. 
So in order to shield the movement of the troop transports and to counter possible IGN surface ship threats, Halsey deployed the kitchen sink in the South Pacific. On January the 29th, a carrier group built around the USS Enterprise rendezvoused with the USS Saratoga's task force. Task Force 67, consisting of four cruisers and four destroyers, joined up with Admiral Lee's Task Force 64, consisting of three battleships and four destroyers. They escorted Task Force 62.8, consisting of four transports and four destroyers, maintaining a course 100 miles to Lunga Point through the Lungo Channel. Close by to cover this was also Task Force 18, consisting of six cruisers and six destroyers, sailing due south of Guadalcanal. Yes, there are going to be a lot of task force going forward in this series. Growing exponentially, actually. I'm not going to lie. It is going to get very chaotic to um, navigate most of this when it comes to an audio podcast. I am literally thinking in my head right now the Battle of Letty Gulf. I have no idea how I'm going to do that one. On a random side note, I have a friend of mine that I grew up with who, for some reason, he really wants to... um, come on my personal channel and do a rendition of the Battle of Letty Gulf. It's his favorite uh, naval battle. I might end up doing that. Maybe I'll make a podcast out of it. That is if it actually uh, is cohesive enough, because that's probably the most complicated naval battle in history, I'd say. But anyways, that's for the very distant future. Rear Admiral Richard Giffen, commanding Task Force 18, which is a new face to the Pacific. He had spent the war thus far in the Atlantic and the Mediterranean Sea and he was a personal favorite of Admiral King. He was tasked by Halsey to rendezvous with Captain Robert Briscoe, who was commanding the Cactus Striking Force consisting of four destroyers off Cape Chunter. Once they met up, Giffen was to lead them on a daylight sweep up the slot as the transports unloaded at Lunga on the 30th. Now, Giffen needed to make up with Briscoe for 9 p.m., And in order to make the deadline, he detached his escort carriers, Suana and Shenango, with two destroyers so the rest of his force could pull up to 24 knots. During the afternoon, unidentified aircraft began lighting up his Task Force 18's radar. His escort carriers began tossing up groups of wildcats and radar-equipped Avengers to try and get a clearer picture. But poor weather was hindering their efforts, and Giffen refused to break radio silence, as was pertaining to his orders. In the mid-afternoon, 32 Bettys of the 701st and 705th Air Groups took off from Rabal with the intent to perform night aerial torpedo attacks. Around twilight, Task Force 18 was set up in a column formation spaced out around 2,500 yards apart, arranged perfectly to face off against another surface fleet, but in quite a terrible position for anti-aircraft maneuvers. To try and basically make some sense of what I just said, um, for those of you who don't play World of Warships, because I'm, I'm sure you'll understand this, when an aircraft is coming towards you, you kind of want to present you know, the smallest target. And most importantly, you want your anti-aircraft guns to be swiveled perfectly to uh, hit the enemy as they're incoming. But when you're facing other surface ships, you know the best position for your ship is obviously to present your broadsides so that you can bear all your guns upon them. Often the way um, the ship's formation is of their anti-aircraft guns and their mounted guns, these are kind of not directed in the same angles, let's say. Well, not perfectly. They're overlapping, of course, but not perfectly. So to just simplify, what is good for facing surface ships is often not good for facing aircraft. 
And this admiral, of course, is expecting an engagement of surface ships, and he is not thinking about aircraft at the time. Now, at 7 o'clock, his flagship cruiser Wichita's radar began showing what looked like to be a Japanese hornet's nest of bombers. The Japanese airwave came from the west, circling around the task force to gain the darker backdrop of the eastern sky for their approach. At 7.19, 16 Bettys from the 705th commenced their attack. Anti-aircraft fire began to spurt, but Giffen remained hell-bent on making his rendezvous. So, he simply kept up the speed and ceased having his formation perform zigzagging maneuvers. Not a very good idea. This obviously aided the Japanese pilots, who began dropping white flares alongside of the task force columns to help guide the bombers on their torpedo runs. I mean, like, you have to picture this. The ships are literally going basically in a straight line. This is pretty easy to, you know, throw torpedoes at. At 7.38, Lieutenant Commander Joichi Higai took his force of 15 Bettys from the 701st and began to make their runs. At 9.40, a torpedo hit the Chicago on her starboard side, followed two minutes later by another, halting the Chicago. Another torpedo hit the Wichita, but it was a dud, fortunately for her. Still, Giffen did not feel the need to change course nor lower his speed. To decrease their visibility from the enemy, he ordered the gunners to cease any firing unless they had an absolute target. Chicago's crews had stopped her flooding, leaving her listing 11 degrees. And Chicago's engineers were trying to crank her engines up to keep her up to speed, but it simply was not in her cards. So Giffen deployed the Louisville to tow the injured Chicago away to safety. Now I just want to add here, the Chicago is an old girl, but she's basically a capital ship. Just keep that in mind. On January the 30th, Chicago was limping behind Louisville at three knots while Giffen's task force 18 continued on. Halsey dispatched the destroyer transports Sands and Tug Navajo to relieve Louisville so that she could rejoin the task force. From the early morning to 2 p.m., Task Force 18's radar screens displayed multiple Japanese reconnaissance aircraft coming out of Rabaul. Admiral Kusaka was greatly relieved to find out Task Force 18 was dealt an injury, thus preventing it from threatening the first run of Operation KE. Kusaka predicted the Chicago would slip beyond the radius of her fighter cover from Guadalcanal, so he sent another airstrike to attack the extremely vulnerable ship. However, unbeknownst to him, the escort carriers Suani, Shinango, and the Enterprise were shuttling Wildcats to protect Chicago. Another group of 11 Bettys from the 751st Air Group lifted off at 12.05, and a Coast Watcher warned Chicago and the Enterprise of the threat around 3.05, allowing the carriers to launch fighters to intercept shortly after 4 p.m. Admiral Nimitz advised Giffen, alongside the Japanese aircraft, there was also 10 enemy submarines deployed south and southeast of Guadalcanal. But Halsey ordered Giffen to change course for a fate with the battle-worthy cruisers at 3 p.m., thus Task Force 18 divided, leaving the Chicago stripped of her shield of anti-aircraft batteries as the fighters were heading off with the rest of the force. Chicago would have only four Wildcats running cap over her, and at 3.40, the Bettys began to emerge. When Enterprise understood the plight of the Chicago, she quickly sent over six more Wildcats to try and intercept, prompting the Bettys to rush for the Chicago even quicker. Only two Wildcats managed to attack the Bettys before they released their loads. 
In all but a minute, the Japanese desperately tried to toss their fish into the sea as the American pilots downed three Bettys likewise into the sea. Chicago tried its best to pick up anti-aircraft fire, with her gunners claiming to have shot down four Bettys as they were attacking them. Five torpedo wakes emerged all converging upon the Chicago. At 4.24, one torpedo hit her forward, followed seconds later by three others which ripped open Chicago's midship. The catastrophic damage prompted Captain Davis to immediately order abandoned ship. As Davis recounted, Chicago rolled over slowly, over her starboard side and settled by the stern, with colors flying. Fifty-six men, including six officers, died aboard the Chicago, leaving 1,069 survivors. During all of this, the Japanese pilots also came across the destroyer La Vellette, which had valiantly turned back at the last minute to try and help the Chicago. Three Bettys surged at her, with one dropping a torpedo just 300 yards off her. The torpedo hit La Vellette's port side abreast her forward engine room. 21 of her crew were killed, but her engineers managed to get her back into fighting condition quite quickly, and she managed to pull away. Twelve Bettys had been lost that day, including Lieutenant Commander Higai, one of the very best Betty pilots in the Imperial Japanese Navy. The sinking of the Chicago greatly frustrated Admiral Nimitz. In his official report of the event to King, he wrote this. It is especially regrettable because it might have been prevented. Frankly, that was just Admiral Nimitz being very pissed off. There was a long list of errors that led to the Chicago's fate. For one, Giffen was obsessed with keeping his rendezvous time, and this led him not to consider the formation of his force, the amount of aerial support, and to be blunt, it was a simple tactical disaster. To make matters worse, some of his warships were carrying the super-secret at the time VT proximity fuses. Nimitz vented his anger and his staff, threatening to shoot anyone who announced the loss of the Chicago. During the afternoon of January the 31st, American intelligence deciphered a dispatch stating Kondo's advance force had departed truck two days early, and this triggered Admiral Nimitz to alert his subordinates in the South Pacific to expect a major Japanese operation that he thought was about to begin. The rather little battle of Rennell Island had taken out the Chicago, but it had also postponed the beginning of Operation KE, now being slated for February the 1st. The reinforcement unit which was responsible for the evacuation was gathering its cruisers and over 21 destroyers at Shoreland. Army officers were assured that the nominated commander of the reinforcement unit for Operation KE, Rear Admiral Satsuma Kimura, led the finest flotilla in the IJN, Destroyer Squadron 10. But on January the 19th, Kimura was injured when the submarine Nautilus damaged his flagship, Akizuki, near Shortland, prompting his replacement for Rear Admiral Koyanagi. At the same time, Admiral Kuzaka secured the appointment of Rear Admiral Shintaro Hashimoto as commander of the reinforcement unit, prompting Koyanagi to be held in a reserve capacity. The 11th Air Fleet and the 6th Air Division were responsible for maintaining the daylight cap over the reinforcement unit's runs but at night, it would be the R-Area Air Force. 
The 60 float planes of the R Area Air Force would sweep ahead of the reinforcement unit, trying to shield them from the troublesome American PT boats. Operation KE relied heavily on some plans revolving around the Russell Islands. If the destroyers failed to extract the 17th Army, it would fall upon landing craft from the Russell Islands. Many Army officers also hoped to install a temporary garrison and base in the Russells to work as a feint. Thus, on January the 28th, six destroyers bearing 328 men went to the Russells. And so soon, the grand operation would be unleashed. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm just now finishing up a multi-part series on aspects of the attack on Pearl Harbor you might not know. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself have my own Patreon, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And over there, you can find exclusive content, the first episode being The Fentanyl Crisis of North America and How It Compares to the Opium Wars of the 19th Century. I assure you, it's a pretty interesting episode. The hybrid force of US soldiers and marines seized Kokumbona, greatly hindering Operation KE's timetable. Alongside this, the Battle of Rennell Island also added to hinder Operation KE, to add further misery to the future of its success. Could the IJA and the IGN work together to pull it all off? Only time will tell.